to Leading Views. Today's guest is Antonio Zapula, European Young Leader, CEO of the Thomson Reuters Foundation, founder of Openly, an online platform that delivers fair and accurate LGBT plus news. Thank you for joining me, Antonia, and welcome. Thank you, Angela. Thank you for having me. So before we kind of move on to discuss your work with Openly, um, I'd like to first talk to you about philanthropy in, in, in general and then how your foundation kind of interprets it. What are your thoughts on the role that philanthropy can or should play in today's society? I think it's a great question. I think we need to somehow take a step back and really define what philanthropy is all about and uh, also defining the reason why philanthropy itself exists, right? So if you think of philanthropy, clearly it revolves around the concept of giving. And I think everybody can agree on that. The question is then, why giving? Uh, and there's a number of different reasons, right? You might give to advance a cause uh, in which you particularly believe in. You might want to give to accelerate change uh, in areas where, for example, you think not enough has been done. And I'm thinking of uh, government interventions, for example, on specific policies. Or you might also give for tax reasons. So there's a variety of reasons why you might want to give. Uh, and then the second follow-up question from that, I guess, is what kind of giving? are we talking about? Because there is uh, this idea of check writing. Uh, there is uh, the idea of getting more involved by setting programs and, and be very much involved in program development. And there is also the idea of a shared value, which is this, uh, if you want, this new model, a newer model, which was conceived by Michael Porter and Mark Kramer, uh, which is really shaking up the, the whole idea of philanthropy. And this is this idea that is, is far away from social responsibility, really. And it's very close to the principle of uh, social progress uh, and profit going hand in hand and not necessarily their own ways, uh, the fact that they actually happen together. And so there is no reason why a company, for example, cannot boost its competitiveness while also creating value for, for, for society. And for, for this to happen, though, a change in mindset really must take place. And in a whole, if you want, re-evaluation of uh, the links between global society and global corporate performance, which is really, really much possible, but it's, 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 it's a complete change of mind frame, as I say. And this takes us to the whole idea of corporate responsibility and corporate philanthropy. You know, I, I attend Davos every year now for, I've been attending for the past uh, 10 years, and, uh, and it's very clear that this idea of, uh, you know, the role of the CEO with the expectations that he carries, also from a societal point of view, has really much changed. And, uh, you know, CEOs have gone from symbol of aspiration to a certain extent, to symbol of greed, uh, an object of uh, of intense scrutiny. And even if you look at the younger CEOs of Silicon Valley, the CEOs of the so-called shared economy, there is a much more frequently um, the question of uh, you know being raised of how you impact society. And it goes back to millennials. You know, if you look at consumer trends, uh, I'm looking at the latest numbers from the Deloitte Millennial Survey from 2018. 40% of 40%, 40% of those millennials polled really believe that the goal of business should be to improve society. And so this is seriously worth pondering, especially if you consider that by 2020, millennials will make up 40% of all consumers, influencing about 14 billion in annual sales. And so it's this idea of having profit with purpose, uh, which was spearheaded by social enterprise uh, and, and impact investment in the past couple of decades, but now is really at the center of, uh, of, of companies and corporate engagement and CEOs of the future will want their companies to be recognized as a force for good. How does the Thomson Reuters Foundation approach philanthropy then? 
Is it about giving directly to specific causes? Is it about supporting organizations? How do you decide what will have the greatest impact? So we're not a grant giving foundation. And also the foundation is separate from the CSR unit of Thomson Reuters. So we've been around for about 35 years and the foundation, it's a very, it's set up as a separate charity, uh, which is uh, recognized in the UK and in the US as an independent uh, entity. But it's very much linked obviously to the business because we receive an annual donation of 4.5 million uh, pounds by Thomson Reuters, which really runs, if you want, our operational costs. Uh, and then we additionally found for another equivalent of, I would say, five to six million pounds, depending on, on the year. So the model, is, it's, it's very unique. And, and I think it's a, it's, a very, it's a very innovative model because as a corporate foundation, we do leverage the skills of the enterprise, of Thomson Reuters, but we don't write checks. So we, we reinvest the money into programs that in turn really accelerate the impact of uh, NGOs and social enterprises. The mission of the foundation is obviously to advance the free media, uh, to advance the rule of law, uh, and also to stand for human rights. Those are the three main areas of work. And in terms of tools that we have at our disposal, we have a, a global team of journalists, over 65 in fact, that are full-time and reporting to an editor-in-chief uh, that reports, who reports into myself here at the foundation with the same distribution of Reuters but focused only on human rights reporting. So we cover stories from all around the world that look at human rights from a perspective of women's rights, LGBT rights, uh, land and property rights, food sustainability, social innovation, the human impact of climate change, trafficking and slavery. And those stories are distributed to one billion readers a day through the same distribution of the Reuters network. So it's this idea of devoting resources and in this case, obviously, skills of, of media reporters and producers to actually look at issues that perhaps Reuters or any other news agency would normally focus on specifically. We also train reporters around the world and mentor reporters all around the world. So this idea of scaling up the media uh, media excellence around the world by ensuring that media continues to be a cornerstone of, of democracy. We also give a core funding uh, to the Reuters Institute of the, for the Study of Journalism at Oxford University, uh, which works with fellows from all around the world to study the profession of, of journalism and to look at future trends. And then we also provide free legal assistance to NGOs and social enterprises around the world that connecting us to the second pillar, if you want, of our strategy, which is the one around rule of law. And the kind of assistance that we provide ranges from operational assistance, which still allows NGOs to save significant amount of money out of their own budget to actually uh, dedicate to the causes and, and the mission of the organization itself. But we also provide legal research that can change policy in the, around the world. And so this idea of, again, uh, using law as a force for good and using media as a force for good is what underpins our strategy, which links back to the business. So I'm intrigued um, by that. You, you mentioned policy. One of my big questions was sort of this idea that is it possible to accomplish change making without having policy making support it? Um, a lot of foundations and organizations or charities or anything like that tend to try to pull away from having a, a political ambition, a political goal. Do you think it is possible to actually have an impact without influencing policy? I think it is. And I think at the same time, it is necessary to, in, to, to inform policy. I mean, if you look, for example, at freedom of speech, I mean, this is such a, a, a global uh, human rights issue that, you know, if you want to affect policy to ensuring that journalists, for example, are able to do their job and, you know, keep on uh, doing their job by uh, not being silenced, yes, that might become a political issue. 
But essentially, it is not a political issue. It is an issue of freedom and, and human rights. So I think we need to be bold in speaking up for human rights issues, which are not necessarily political, but maybe have been politicized by, by individuals. At the same time, I think, you know, if lobbyists can affect policy, why shouldn't philanthropy be able to affect policy? I think I, I understand why uh, some foundations might not want to enter into the policy sphere, but I'll give you an example of how, for example, we affect policy through trust law. We connect the NGOs with the law firms and the law firms produce large scale legal research, which is then used by the NGOs themselves to do some advocacy work. So we don't do the advocacy because we don't really, uh, we don't do that. We're not in the business of doing advocacy, but, but we facilitate legal research that can then be used by an NGO to do their own advocacy. And so, for example, if you look at um, slavery and trafficking, which is one of the issues in which we, we've been particularly active for the past decade, we work with an organization called the Visayan Forum in the Philippines, which is one of the leading anti-trafficking organizations and anti-slavery organizations in the Philippines. And we connected them with law firms, which did a very comprehensive legal research looking at the issue of minimum wage in the Philippines. And by providing best case analysis of minimum wage for domestic workers around the region and around the world, Visayan then was able to lobby the government of the Philippines for some change. And as a result, the minimum wage for domestic workers was implemented. And the government wrote something called like the Magna Carta for domestic workers, which automatically improved the minimum wage and the living standards of over 2 million domestic workers working in the Philippines. So are we doing policy work? We are facilitating policy work. But that policy work that was done by that organization effectively raised the condition of living of 2 million people. So is it a model that's successful? I believe it's absolutely successful. Is it a model that we will continue to push for? Absolutely. And is that your advice? If you had any advice to give to sort of philanthropic organizations as we move forward, do you feel like that is a model that should be replicated and duplicated across the industry? Or do you think there's just a place for all the various types of philanthropy that exist out there? I think there is a place for for everything, but at the same time, I think if you're talking to, if I'm talking to a corporate foundation, I will just say, make sure that you go beyond CSR. Make sure that you link your corporate giving to, first of all, the mission and the values of your companies. I mean, if you're, for example, a technological technology company, there's so much that can be that can be done in that space. Looking at, you know, the social footprint of uh, of your company, especially if you look at issues such as data, data privacy, uh, you know, digital rights. So really look at uh, your core business and see how you can provide you know, philanthropical solutions that really link back to the business. Um, and that, I think, will also be able to in turn engage your employees in a much more successful manner uh, because they will actually see a direct link between the giving and the and the core mission of the company itself. And I think the, I'm particularly proud of what the Tom Storrs Foundation does here because I think it's quite innovative and it's quite bold in the sense that, you know, the company really understands the importance of the foundation. And the foundation is really at the center of a much wider ecosystem. So it's not really considered as something on the on the side. It's really at the, at the center of the entire ecosystem. Our board comprises of uh, the leaders of the business units of the company. So it's, it's very much integrated into what we do. We'll still re- retain our independence, but at the same time, we'll link back to the business because it makes perfect sense. And how do you feel about individual philanthropy? I'm, I'm, I've always been interested to see the difference between philanthropy in, for example, the US and perhaps to a certain extent the UK versus the rest of Europe. There's this notion, at least in the US, of these everyday Oprahs. You know, you have all these funds where people can donate $10, $5, $1, and it, it's, it's about having a small individual impact 
versus in Europe, perhaps people have a better feeling for their government taking care of the issues in society. And there's this notion of having a very strong social net. Is that an accurate assessment? And do you think that's going to change in Europe? And do you think that there will be sort of a rise in individual individual donation philanthropy? And does that even really have an impact? It's a good question. And the, the answer is that I don't have a straightforward answer. I think your assessment, it's, it's pretty accurate. And I also, I will add in an extra layer, if you want, I think in Europe, the influence, for example, of, of religion and, and the church in particular has been, if you want, cre- has created another network, another infrastructure uh, for, if you want, for welfare. I mean, that that's what also was the case. And I, and I wonder whether that is the reason why we have a model of philanthropy in Europe, which is substantially different than the one that we have in the US. I also think tax regulations in the US have really allowed philanthropy in the past uh, 100 years to assume proportions which we still don't have in in Europe. And the mentality, I think, it's particularly significantly different. I mean, US donors uh, have a level of complexity and understanding of issues, which is definitely way ahead of what we have seen in Europe. But at the same time, I think while the ecosystem will develop, and not just in Europe, also look at Asia, for example, right, with with China uh, entering the philanthropic sector, I think there would be different opportunities and perhaps even new models. This idea of um, empowering people with micro donations, I think is particularly uh, interesting because um, it does allow individuals to, you know, donate $10 or $100. And I'm thinking of models such as Kiva, for example, or micro lending, which are particularly interesting. But then again, they come from the US and they haven't really made uh, a significant impact in, in, in Europe. I don't have um, an answer. I think I w- I'm looking at the ecosystem uh, with a lot of interest and I expect a lot of change in the next 20 years. Now it's more of a, an opinion question, but you know, you, as you mentioned, worked a lot on promoting press freedom. Um, I assume that is both in Europe and around the world. Politics and the political landscape in Europe is, is shifting quite a bit and, and really around the world. Where do you feel like the best work can be done to promote press freedom. I don't really know that there is a particular solution, but how can we make sure, I mean, you're seeing basically um, in the US, it's it's becoming more dangerous to be a journalist. You know, you had the Philippines a few years ago, a huge amount of journalists um, ended up dying. And I'm just wondering, what do you think is this is the answer? or part of the answer? I think there's there's a number of issues. There is the actual safety of, of reporters, which is one. Uh, and, 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 you know, there's there's fantastic organizations from CPJ uh, to INSEE that do fantastic work in, in the physical protection of, of, of journalists. And then there, there is the issue of, uh, you know, the physical, uh, so the physical protection, but there's also issue of, uh, of actually being able to to do their work without being silenced. And I think there's different, there's the space for both areas of intervention. I think the rule of law is essential and, and that is a starting point of every conversation. And the reality is that even in countries where there is rule of law, the rule of law is either ignored or is actually twisted to actually silence uh, the media. Uh, so I think there's there's two levels of interventions. One is making sure that the rule of law is actually there. And if it's not there, looking at best practice or looking at international regulation. And the second one is actually engaging with those journalists. And I'm thinking, for example, of Maria Ressa in the Philippines, who's been doing fantastic work, 
that you know are at odds with the government to use a you know a euphemism here uh, and uh, and understanding that they are being attacked effectively by the government who's using uh, different tools to to prevent journalists from doing their work and i think it's being able to be bold and 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 address the two issues separately because they are two separate issues but with the same importance we have an event coming up in november which is called the trust conference here in london and the second day of our conference on the 14th to be precise of november will be entirely dedicated to the issue of oppressed freedom um, and the issue of digital rights. And on that day, for example, we'll have an interesting conversation between uh, Matthew Carana Galicia, the son of Daphne um, Galicia, who, as you know, was murdered in Malta, and Maria Ressa, as I already mentioned, the CEO of Rappler in the Philippines, and Natalia Morari, who works from TD8 in Moldova. And they will be talking about exactly what we just mentioned, so the, paying the price for telling the truth. And then on the second part of the conference, we'll be having an interesting conversation with Diane Foley, who's the mother of James Foley, who talks about the issue of uh, protection of journalists who are actually deployed in, in dangerous areas, what can be done, what kind of training do they actually need, how do you deal with the government? Uh, so very different issues, but both I think worth being discussed. Yeah, that sounds interesting, very interesting. Okay, shifting a little. You've been described as an outspoken supporter of the business case for human rights. I really like that that angle. Can you talk a little bit more about it? I think you've touched on it a little bit in the context of um, purpose um, with corporate philanthropy. But what do, what do you mean by that? I guess I mean that business is very clear that business cannot thrive in a world where people don't. Right. I mean, uh, you have no business if people if people are not thriving. And so protecting the people, protecting the environment uh, will allow you effectively to, you know, to protect the future of your own enterprise. And in regards to openly that you mentioned, it is a very similar proposition. LGBT rights are human rights. And unless people, uh, you know, all people are actually empowered and have access to education, have access to uh, employability, we would not be able to, to, to do justice to, to, whole human, to the whole humanity. The case for openly, I think, it really rooted in the idea that L the LGBT community is often very much attacked by the media. And so it's this idea of using the power of uh, the news, the power of media to really change narratives and change discourse around the LGBT community. We uh, really looked at the number of headlines that were used around the world to describe the LGBT community as part of a launch campaign. And uh, it was pretty ho a horrific exercise. Some um, of the words included devil worshiper, pedophile, deviant, diseased. And so our entire campaign uh, for the launch was actually structured around those headlines uh, and the need for a fair and accurate representation of the LGBT community. And we're not doing this simply because it's morally right, but we're doing it because it makes sense. I mean, you cannot have a community that's completely stigmatized and completely, you know, systematically abused by the media. And unless you change that conversation, unless we uh, you know, we describe the LGBT community in, uh, in fair and accurate terms, that community will continue to be persecuted. And so the case of Openly is precisely that. Let's, let's have a very fair and balanced discussion around the LGBT community around the world. And we believe that this is part of a wider, if you want, economic proposition about economic development and change in which the media has a role to play. And then, you know, those who invest in, uh, in infrastructure on the ground, those who invest in centers for the LGBT community and LGBT people, those who invest in HIV AIDS prevention also have a role to play. But everything has to link in. And we think the media, the media is really at the center of this ecosystem. That's really interesting. So my understanding is that then Openly is a, a digital platform that sources all this news. 
how does the model work? How do you then share that news with media around the world? So we have a, a very diverse distribution um, strategy. So Openly, as you say, is a digital platform that uh, not only hosts uh, news written by the journalists of the Thomson Reuters Foundation, but it also aggregates other news stories uh, that we believe uh, you know share the same values of Openly, so fair and accurate and, and, and balanced. And so we also aggregate them under one roof. We also aggregate resources um, written by NGOs uh, and international organizations around the LGBT community. So it's this idea of creating really an ecosystem where someone who has an interest in the LGBT uh, cause could uh, you know, go and, 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 and explore effectively. Uh, but we are also conscious that for people to make that effort to actually go on openly, which is openlynews.com, they will, they will have to have an interest. They will have to be engaged already in this conversation. So. Part of our distribution strategy also involves our stories being distributed through the Reuters Newswire, which means that our stories will be distributed through Reuters and it's one billion potential readers on a daily basis, which means that our stories are distributed across the world whether to Reuters clients, whether they requested our stories or not. And I think that's a really important message to stress because it does really change the narrative around LGBT stories. Our stories end up in a news desk in Saudi, or in Indonesia, or in, uh, or in Brunei, for example. We were the first news organization to break the story about Brunei. And because of the distribution of Reuters and the global pickups, you know, I mean, I don't need to tell you what happened with, with that story and how globally it became, the kind of support that it received, and the fact that now Brunei is actually take a step backward and say, okay, actually, we're going to drop death penalty for gay sex. So it's this idea of shedding, shining a light on an issue uh, you know, giving important prominence through global distribution of stories, and then the rest really uh, happens automatically. And do you have a way to measure the sort of uh, some form of sentiment analysis, let's say, of news about the LGBT community around the world? Do you feel that the work that Openly is doing is actually having an impact? Are you seeing more positive stories, more negative stories? I mean, how do you measure that? We haven't done the analysis on, uh, you know, that goes beyond our ecosystem. What we have seen is that there is a strong interest for every single story that we write around the LGBT uh, community. And I would say, right, right, you know, actually about the issues that, you know, affect the LGBT people more, more than the LGBT community itself. Because the stories span from business stories to, you know, uh, features to breaking news stories such as Brunei. And, and we've seen global pickups growing by the day. We have a very, very strong interaction on social. And uh, interestingly enough, we found that there's a very, very young audience that actually follows openly, especially in countries where, uh, you know, there are legislative, le legislative challenges for being openly part of the LGBT community. And that's really interesting because the kind of stories that we write, they don't really have necessarily a young audience in mind. They are just written for a wider professional, if you want, educated audience. So the fact that there is this very strong engagement with a very young demographic, it's it's fascinating. Just to give you a size, we have over 100 million people reading our stories globally. So the, the, the impact is definitely there. The, the interest is definitely there. What you mentioned about the wider analysis that goes beyond our immediate ecosystem is very interesting. And it's something I would like to do in the coming years. Okay, well then, I will then switch over to a more personal question. Who inspires you? Who has inspired you? Uh, there's a lot of people that inspire me because I'm fortunate enough to have a role that allows me to interact with, uh, with brilliant people all over the world. I, I met Bill Gates twice and, and he's definitely one that I, that I have to mention because the synergies with the work that we do are there and, uh, and, and the ability of, uh, 
of tackling really macro issues and, and achieving significant results is evident. So Bill Gates is definitely one of the people that inspires me. I'll mention somebody else who's a very young, inspirational leader who's only 18 now. Uh, and I met him once. Uh, his name is Ahmad Nawaz. Ahmad is a, a very young uh, anti-radicalization activist who was in, uh, in Peshawar in 2014 during the attack in the school. If you remember, 150 students were, were killed, including his younger brother, Harris, in that school. Ahmad was uh, forced to play dead in order to survive and eventually escaped um, and you know, now lives in the UK and he's become, he has become an anti-radicalization activist. He's also going to come and speak at the Trust Conference this November. He's a naturally born leader and I wish there were more people like him. That's a wonderful way to close. Thank you so much for joining. I really appreciated you having you on. Thank you, Angela. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Friends of Europe's Leading Views podcast. Tell us what you think. Leave a comment, a like, or a rating, and have a lovely day.